are entering the Freedom Hut. Taxes, taxes, taxes. It used to be Russia, 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 but now the Democrats are obsessed with seeing President Trump's tax returns stretching back for six years. Is this just a tactic of delay until they can finally get their hands on the full Mueller report? What do they think will be in this? Plus, the border is a catastrophe. It is getting worse. Democrats are telling us what they really think, at least some of them are, which is that they want open borders. What can we do about it? And Stacey Abrams making some unfounded and deeply divisive and inflammatory claims. We'll talk about what she's got going on coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Uh, It's something the president is certainly still keeping that option on the table. Um, And as he said, and as a number of us have talked about over the last several days, this is certainly not the president's first choice. Uh, But Democrats at this point, their unwillingness to do anything has left the president with very little option. Thousands of people that are illegally pouring into this country that are really putting national security at risk. And uh, it's irresponsible the way that that has been ignored by Democrats in Congress. And this president is not going to allow that to continue. If he has to close the border, he will. But that's certainly mm. not his top choice. Look- Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Sarah Huckabee Sanders there. Part of the slowdown in the threat to shut down the border. Uh, I have been very clear on this with you. I've brought on experts. I've been talking offline to them as much as I can and the shutdown border, I, I've been saying it's not going to get this situation fixed, even if, even if you did shut down the border. And I know there's this we have a, a a sense of you know raging against the helplessness of knowing there's a crisis, knowing there's a catastrophe and not being able to do anything about it. And even our elected officials and our own government seems unable or unwilling to do anything about it so when trump says well i'll shut down the border entirely i can understand that initial reaction of okay good he's he's doing something take action better than suffering in silence but now it seems they have walked that back and it's because of exactly what i said to you which is that this is not going to be an effective tactic for handling this uh, this is not going to get the president what he wants. It's folk, but it has. It's not a total loss. It focuses the national conversation on the issue. It shows the seriousness with which he's approaching it. And it shows that he is willing to try anything and everything to get this under control. And his political opponents, meanwhile, the Democrats, are on the complete opposite side of this. They do not want to fix this problem. This problem benefits them. They do not want the president to be successful in ending this massive migrant flow. They prefer the migrant flow to continue. Now the president's saying, and the White House is saying with him that they're going to give Mexico a one-year warning. And uh, he also has said that instead of closing the border, he might just put a tariff on cars. So you could also say that this isn't a walk back so much as it's a negotiation. All right, well, if you're not going to, if if the government and if the Democrats won't, support a closing of the border what about putting a tariff on cars 
What about a tariff on cars that cross our southern border and then use that money specifically to fund additional Border Patrol and Border Patrol facilities? Now, I think that's a pretty good idea, except remember, the overflow issue and the processing issue is one component of this. But we don't just want to process people more efficiently who are going to abuse the asylum to get into the country. No, no, no. We want to stop them from getting into the country and stop coming and lying about the credible fear that they have so that they can be in the country. We're not just trying to make this a a smoother transition for illegal aliens coming into the country. We're trying to stop illegal aliens from coming into the country. That's a... And that's where we have this break with the Democrats on this. Anyway, we'll talk more about immigration in the second hour. But I, I just did. I wanted to note that the initial my initial sense of this, the White House now shares. And, and so they're on the same page that I was on a few days ago, which is shutting down the border. It's not going to do it. It's not it doesn't handle the problem. You could shut down the border. You still have people that cross illegally. You still have to arrest, detain them and then process them. So even if they're remember, they're not going through legal ports of entry to begin with. So, I mean, to shut down the border doesn't do anything for them, doesn't do anything to them. All it does is maybe give you leverage with the government of Mexico and the Central American governments involved here. But they're just going to say their hands are tied and you know, they can't do anything. And that's exactly what they're doing. But I, I want to just switch for a moment here to the most bizarre obsession that liberals have other than Trump's tax. I mean, other than Trump's uh, Russia collusion that didn't happen, that is a fantasy. And that is Trump's taxes. We have never seen, I, I see people that are apparently reasonable, well-adjusted human beings who, when you bring up Trump's taxes, they all of a sudden uh, think that this is the most important thing that we could ever we could ever see or find out about. You have Pelosi today saying that they're that the Congress is is going to demand these. They they want Trump's taxes and then they're gonna leak it. And you know, one problem I have in this whole get Trump effort is that the federal bureaucracy is not very interested in finding leakers of sensitive and sometimes classified information that hurts the president. Where are those prosecutions? Not that hard. Not that hard to find out who leaked General Flynn's phone call to the Washington Post. You know, not that hard to figure out these things if you want to. I think we all know that the people that are generally in those positions, the career bureaucrats, tend to be Democrats. And even if you have a room full of three or four Republicans at the Bureau or the DOJ, guess what? One Democrat in that room will shut the whole thing down because they're true believers. But back to Pelosi for a moment here. Her her desire is for Trump's taxes. That's what needs to happen. We're going to get Trump's taxes and then all will be right with the world. Play five. No, well, the law exists. The law is very clear. The law says, and I'll read it to you. The law says oh, that upon written request from the chairman of the Committee on Ways and Means or the chairman of the Finance or the chairman of the Joint Committee on Taxation, that would be either one of those other two. But anyway, uh, the secretary shall furnish, shall, not may, should, could, shall, or furnish such committee with any return or return information specified in such request. 
Isn't it interesting how Democrats, when they want to, are all of a sudden legal literalists? The law is the law. Every word of the law is to be followed to the letter of the law. What about immigration, folks? What about all that stuff about how if you're in the country illegally, you are to be deported to your country of origin? Where, where is that? I could read that statute out. It's pretty clear, pretty cut and dry. No, uh, Pelosi doesn't like that one, though. And once you start going with, oh, this is what the law says about the IRS, you get down that rabbit hole. Even the IRS doesn't know what the IRS code really says in some respects. So got to remember that. But they they really, really want Trump's taxes. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is uh, giving the White House's explanation of this. Here's what she said. Play six. Uh, as the president said yesterday, while his taxes continue to be uh, under audit, he doesn't anticipate that uh, changing at any point anytime soon and therefore doesn't have any intention to release those returns. But let's not forget, Brian, that the president filled out hundreds of pages in a financial disclosure. You can see a broad range of uh, the president's business investments, uh, all of the different financial interests yeah. through that extensive and very exhaustive financial disclosure form that you have to fill out in order to work in the government, uh, in order to run for president, and he's done that. Uh, it gives you a very good picture mm-hmm. of just how successful he was as a businessman, and um, I think it should answer all of the questions that anybody might have about his financial dealings. I have a question. What the heck do Democrats think they're really going to find? What do they think is going to show up in these tax returns. You know, I remember when Barack Obama's transcripts were an issue and hearing from all these Democrats how school records are sacred. You could never, oh, there's privacy involved. You, you, know, you know what that was all about? And I, I was very consistent on this. It wasn't Barack Obama. I, I do not believe that he was a, a foreign student or any of this stuff that people have said. No, no, no. But you would have seen, he went to Occidental College in, what, the 80s? And no offense to anybody went to Occidental, but it's not an elite institution. And I'm not trying to sound like some person who cares about that stuff, because some of you get mad at me if I do. But I'm just, it's not an elite institution. Then all of a sudden he goes to Columbia, and then he's the head of Harvard Law Review. It happens real fast. And the reason that they didn't want to release Barack Obama's transcript from Columbia is he was probably a, you know, B-minus, C-plus kind of student. You know, really mediocre, middle-of-the-pack kind of student. That's it. And you could say, well, Buck, why would they care so much about that? Oh, because the mythology around Obama was that he was the, and there were people that were saying this, that he was the most brilliant president in the history of the United States, that there's nobody else. And you could make an argument to me, and I would actually be more than willing to hear it about how grades are not really a reflection of one's intellectual ability. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. Work ethic, do you care, do you you know, you know, what school are you in? What curriculum are you doing? That's all true. There's a lot of subjectivity in it. But just the 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 notion that Obama wasn't the super genius to save all humanity, as reflected in his his college records, would have been too much for Democrats to bear. So Obama, unlike other presidents, never and people challenge me on this. I say, no, 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 never released his college transcripts, never kept those secret. Oh, and those never leaked, huh? Yeah, nobody could sneak into that super top secret Columbia University, you know, computer system and find those. But you've already had some of Trump's tax returns, which is illegal leak, some of it. 
And you know the moment that the Congress gets their hands on the full Trump tax return, you know that it will leak. Of course it will leak. That's why they want it so very badly. But what do they think is in here? This is my, my guess. And I, I think Trump doesn't want to release it just because they want it so badly now. And he he looks at them and just, and I, I, his, his contempt for the media is probably my favorite thing about the man. I mean, his contempt for the mainstream media is, for me, Trump's single most endearing quality. You know, that and his ability to destroy people with funny nicknames is the, is the most entertaining thing about the guy. So he won't give it to them because they're so just, oh, they're so desperate for it. Um, but he also, I think, recognizes that what they want to do is pull apart all of his business dealings. And they may try to, if they have more information about, you know, his tax returns, they may try to go after sources of income that he has. They may, because this is how Democrats do things. I mean, they they boycott, they destroy, they take down. They they may try to shame his any business partners that he has that they're not aware of. Uh, they they will use this as essentially state mandated because the IRS forces you to give this information. This is state mandated oppo research. Uh, and Trump says he's under audit and doesn't want to release it when he's under audit. And you know, I, I don't I don't know, and I'm. Being honest with you, I don't know how credible of an explanation that really is. I think that there would be some questions about the guy's net worth and who the heck cares whether he's worth a billion dollars or eight billion dollars. He's got a lot of money and doesn't have to worry about money. So there's this uh, this childish desire, I think, among many in the media and the Democrat Party to just find something here to make fun of Trump, you know, look at the orange man with the silly hair who's not as rich as he says he is. That's really what this, and that, that the press is so dug in on this. Remember, the IRS already has, the federal government not only already has his tax returns, they are auditing him. The IRS is going through and checking through his tax returns. The only reason Congress wants this is to leak it and make a political issue out of it. And leaking it is illegal and they don't care. See, Pelosi will point to the law and say, the law is the law is the law. But then when we turn around and say, hold on a second, who leaked these tax returns? They'll be like, well, you know, it's in the public interest. And I guess we'll never, you know, we may never know where that came from. It's all so predictable, isn't it? Democrats in their lack of principles, at least there's a consistency there. And because Democrats are consistent in their lack of principle, they're also very predictable which is one of the fun things that I get to do on the show is tell you what they're going to do next. And those of you who listen to the show enough know I tend to be right because I know the other side. Uh, we will get deeper into uh, immigration coming up here and also some of what Stacey Abrams, who is a possible, gubernat- uh, possible Senate and then maybe even a presidential candidate, she says she might not declare until very, very late. Uh, but what she's saying, if you want to talk about undermining democracy and undermining institutions, Stacey Abrams is really in a in a class by herself right now, just won't concede the election that she lost, just won't do it. That strikes me as troubling. We'll get into that and maybe even a little creepy Joe Biden time. Stay with me. Nadler is completely distorting our government. This is not an enforcement agency. A congressional committee doesn't get to look at my tax return or your Ways tax return. The IRS is going to have to resist it because it'd be totally illegal. There's no basis for it. And they're not the IRS. They don't investigate tax 
fraud or tax irregularities or tax mistakes. Everybody got all upset when Nixon did this. This is horrendous. If Congress, if these politicians in Congress can get their hands on people's tax returns, you know, they're Democrats and they go after Republicans' tax returns, what have we become? It has to be resisted. The president has to resist this for the good of all of us, because otherwise they get a media person who's too far right. They'll go after their tax returns. Yep. Rudy's totally right here. If they can get Trump's tax returns, they can get any of your tax returns. And they will. One by one, high-profile target by high-profile target on the right, they will take people down. You might say, Buck, but I, I pay all my taxes. I'm, yeah, but they'll, they'll look at every deduction you've taken, and they'll, they'll question why you don't do more charitable giving, or did you do all the charitable giving you said you did? Or you know, There's a lot of sensitive stuff that goes into people. They'll see your, your liabilities. You know, They'll see what you owe. They'll see, they'll see all kinds of things. See your losses in the stock market. They'll see your, I don't know if gambling losses go on your tax return, but they're going to know a lot about you. It should surprise nobody that when Democrats get the opportunity to use the most intrusive instrument of the federal government short of the FBI and the DOJ, which they've done for two years against Trump. Now they're going to number two on the list, which is the IRS. Weaponizing government bureaucracy. This is what Democrats do. Weaponizing the state for the purposes of statist control. That's what's happening here. Just like under the Obama administration, Tea Party groups all of a sudden were getting all this scrutiny and getting blocked and singled out. When was the last time you heard of a scandal where a left wing or, or, or liberals were being targeted by the IRS unjustly? I, I can't think of one. So this is what they do. They force you under threat of imprisonment to give the government information. And then Nancy Pelosi decides that you need more information from the IRS. We're just going to take it. We're just going to get it. It's appalling. We got more coming up, team. Stay with me. Democrats continue to show day in and day out that they're nothing but sore losers. Um, at some point, they have to realize that they have been beat by President Trump in the 2016 election. They're getting beat by him day in and day out uh, on issues that actually matter. And um, I, I think they're a sad excuse for a political party right now. And at some point, they have to decide that they want to actually govern and they actually want to change things and make America better and join the president in those efforts. Mm. I feel like Sarah Huckabee Sanders has gotten even more fierce. And I mean that in the best way. Uh, she She's really kind of leaned into this now, and she's just like, bring it with the press all the time. And I, I like that she just says it the way it is. She's like, look, they're just sore losers. They are. They're just a bunch of sore losers. And so many of the, the Democrat media really invest themselves in the political process in a way where they, they're desperate to have their beliefs reflected back to them from the power structure because they're not intellectually secure enough to know whether what they believe is true. They just feel that it's really true, and they need to have somebody in the White House who's telling them, yeah, that's right, you're right, everything you think is good, uh, and that's why they can't really deal with this. But, you know, this is all in response to the, the Mueller report, even more damaging than, or, or just more damaging than what we've been told so far. 
how is that going? Let's just let's unpack this for a moment. How is that going to work, folks? No charges against the president. No additional indictments after a two-year-long investigation. That is where it is. That that is the determination, the final dispensation. It's going to be worse. It's even worse than people thought. It's even worse. How how could that? You know, never mind should. How could that even theoretically be the case? Oh, I think I told you yesterday. They're going to do two things. And, and Mike, we should we should mark this down for when it happens. All right, this will be one of these things where I say we're going to play back the prediction. There are going to be two lines of attack when the report drops. They're going to say that whatever's redacted, that's where the juicy stuff is. That's where the collusion happened. The black lines that we can't read. And then the other part of it will be they'll find something in the report that, while not criminal, they'll say is is the, is essentially uh, tantamount to, and they're going to use very tortured language to do it, tantamount to a high crime and misdemeanor, uh, and therefore the president should be impeached. I'm I'm not on this. I do not believe that they've given up on impeachment for the president. I keep saying this. Uh, then again, I, I'm also not entirely convinced that Hillary Clinton's not going to run, which I know is, hello, but I know it's sounds crazy, but, you know, she's, she just, it's an outlier prediction. I mean, I'm betting, if I'm betting on Hillary to run, it's like I'm betting on the horse that, you know, looks like it could be, you know, it, it's it's not going to, not even going to place or show or finish. How, how does that, Mike? I haven't been in the track in a long time. It's not even coming in the top three, right? I'm taking a long shot bet. But I think it's a bet I might take. Uh, I think Hillary, with this this crop of Democrat candidates, that where there's no front runner. There's no one who really stands out as the one that, you know, is, is electable or any of that. I, you know, they might just say, Especially if they go with the impeachment route, because then Hillary becomes part of the narrative where they will undo the unjust result of the 2016 election. The only way to restore justice, if you believe that Trump stole that election, is to emplace Queen Hillary on the throne. Yes, Queen Hillary. That's what they're going to say. Mueller's team is, uh, Mueller's work, rather, is, is not yet done in the sense that Democrats are hoping to squeeze more out of it. It's the only thing I'll note that also keeps some of them from criticizing him even more harshly. It is obvious that Mueller was very aggressive with all the people around Trump, was very aggressively trying to get Trump, but it wasn't enough for the Democrats because they're crazy. Uh, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, who I've been fortunate enough to sit down with a few times in the last couple of months to talk to him about this whole case. Uh, here's what he says about this whole, the situation right now of the Mueller report and the team and where it's all going. Play nine. It makes the point that we've been making for two years, despite all of the media reports about how holy and sanctimonious the Mueller team is. There are a bunch of sneaky, unethical leakers, and they are rabid Democrats who hate the president of the United States, and I can't tell you how much false information they leaked during the course of the investigation. How many people were going to be indicted that didn't get indicted? How many blockbusters were there, starting with Papadopoulos and ending with Cohen, who turns out to be a serial liar? How could you have any confidence in this? This is why a full accounting of what the Mueller team did 
not just the full report, but the full accounting of how they got the investigation going and started, that needs to happen. Comey, you can sense that sanctimonious giraffe. Uh, Comey is a little bit on edge. I, I do think that he has some uh, recognition of the fact that if they go back and look at what really happened in the FBI under his watch and the politicized decisions that were made and how all that went down, that things could uh, things could not be so great for the gymster. Uh, I think that he might find himself in in some rough seas very quickly, which is why we should look into this, which is why we should absolutely um, do everything that we can to hold them to account, to find some way to get us closer to real justice, which would be an end to all these uh, witch hunt tactics and some final accounting of what really happened here and, and how the investigation got going and who was behind it and what they were really trying to do. Uh, we, we, we deserve that after two years of being dragged through all this. So yeah, I want the Mueller report to come out. It's going to come out. You know, it's not going to be some bombshell. There'll probably be something, like I said, they will be focused on the redactions and they'll be focused on something that they say means the president's a bad guy, even if it's not criminal. That's where this is all heading. Mark my words, team. We'll be back in just a moment. You can't shame me into pretending that what happened should have happened. Because in the state of Georgia, black people faced hour-long lines, up to four hours, waiting to cast their ballots. 53,000 people were held hostage by a system that a federal judge said was racially discriminatory. 53,000 people, 90% of whom were people of color, 70% of whom were black. I live in a state where one and a half million people got purged, including 600,000 right before my opponent threw his name into the ring. They rejected absentee ballots at an unheard of rate. And so in response to what I believe was a stolen election, and I'm not saying they stole it from me, they stole it from the voters of Georgia. I, I cannot prove empirically that I would have won, but we'll never know. Because you see, voter suppression is as old as America. She's playing with fire here, folks. That's Stacey Abrams um, at the National Action Network conference. National Action Network, of course, the organization run by Al Sharpton, a.k.a. the Reverend Al Sharpton, a man whose lack of integrity and odious record I'm sure you don't need me to go into much detail about. Well, we've got Stacey Abrams here straight up saying that the election in Georgia was, the gubernatorial election was stolen from her. Stolen from her. She will not concede that Republican Brian Kemp defeated her. Even at this stage of the game, folks, the election was back in November. It's April. And even though she claims that there were, uh, you know, 54,000 votes that, should have been counted or weren't counted. She lost by more than that 54,000 votes. So, you know, she would have lost no matter what. There's, there's no scenario mathematically in which she doesn't lose based on what the rules are and everything that we see. But this is what Democrats do. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but 
It's another instance of how they don't have principles. They just have feelings and a desire for power. Because we heard this, all this stuff about right before the presidential election in 2016, how Trump wasn't going to accept the results. And Hillary never accepted the results. And now here, we, and we were told that was undermining our democracy. And people are just repeating this mindlessly. Oh, they're undermining democracy. They're undermining democracy. What does that even mean? Now they're doing that. Are, are they undermining democracy? Oh, no, of course not. When they say an election was stolen, what they're doing is bolstering democracy. They're making it stronger. They're making it more you know, robust. Stacey Abrams thinks that she's going to run for president. That's what people are saying. And she, or she may run for a, a Senate seat again in Georgia. Uh, people now can be entirely constructs of the media and win higher office. We know this. That is part of the power the media still has. Uh, Stacey Abrams has yet to win elected office, and yet she is given the imprimatur of the mainstream media in such a way that she's considered a serious candidate for any office, including the presidency, even without ever showing the ability to win anything. Uh, and and this is very divisive rhetoric she's using about this uh, gubernatorial election, very clearly saying that it was racist, it was racist in intent, racist in outcome. Better be prepared for more of this. You better expect going into 2020, you know, they've been a little quiet. The left has backed off. The Trump is a, you know, uh, basically a grand wizard of the KKK and the you know, the, the White House is operated by neo-Nazis now. And I mean, they've they've they haven't repudiated it, to be sure. And I'm and I'm not even saying that they don't still here and there bring it up. But that's going to be a very. Main point of attack. You're going to hear a lot of that from the Democrats, that Trump is an evil, terrible racist, a bad, bad man, because that's. Just one of the things that they know will make some people sheepish to vote for Trump because, you know, no one wants to vote for a racist. The fact that Trump is not a racist, and I think any fair-minded person could be convinced of that on, on the facts, uh, does not change that there will be this perception, this social perception that to vote for Trump is to cast a vote for a racially divisive and therefore unacceptable figure. And so the Swing voters in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida. Uh, that's what the Democrats are targeting here. That's really the whole game. It's, it's amazing that the whole election comes down to that. But that's what will happen almost uh, almost assuredly. Uh, but Stacey Abrams is getting such a pass on all of this. Uh, you know, she for, just one point that I wanted to make here before we move on to something else. She says black people faced hour long lines up to four hours waiting to cast their ballots. Um. Also, a lot of not black people were waiting in those same lines. The line there was no segregated line voting or anything like that. There, there are people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds voting. I actually spoke today. I interviewed a congressman on Rising who represents a majority minority district, and he's a Republican. Um, but there are lo lots of folks that were in those lines, and long election lines are not some unique thing for Georgia. And those districts, I would note, where you had a higher percentage of African-Americans waiting in those lines, those those elections are run by, at, at the county level, Democrats are the ones that are in charge of that 
Democrats are the ones that are setting up those elections. So, so who's doing the suppression there? I mean, what you know, this this is just demagoguery that she's offering up. This is pure and utter demagoguery, and no one calls her out on it. It's just like with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. She's allowed to say whatever nonsense pops into her mind and they will find some way to clean it up and make it seem like it's not so bad or 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 they'll just ignore it altogether they will not challenge these people they will not challenge the favorite democrats on the left whether it's beto robert o'rourke robert francis ocasio cortez stacy abrams they they don't get asked the hard questions and you know i know we're going to talk about Biden later on in the show. I know because I determine what we do on the show. But what's happened to Biden is he's just getting put out to pasture by the radical left that's taken over his party. That's why there's so much traction behind this, you know, sniffing, touching, feely, feely stuff. Uh, Other than the fact that it is creepy. But this is coming from within his own party. This is from the left because the, the most wacko progressives have really overtaken the Democrat Party. And that's yet another another symptom of it. The, the Biden situation right now is indicative of the power that the woke social justice left has in the Democrat Party apparatus overall. And it's also why someone like Howard Schultz, former CEO of Starbucks, who I know is doing a town hall tonight uh, at Fox News and good for him for being willing to sit down with, you know, I, I again, I've, I've never seen Martha McCallum or Brett Baer ask an unfair question. I've seen all the other, you know, the CNN, MSNBC anchors. I've, I could, they've all asked unfair questions. I've never seen Martha or Brett ask a question that I thought was out of bounds or I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I just have never seen it. But I do think that's indicative of how fair minded they are with the questions they ask. Uh, but Schultz just realizes that, you know, you can't have a 29-year-old uh, former bartender with a not even a tenuous grasp of economics, a non-existent grasp of economics in Ocasio-Cortez. You can't have her reorganizing a few trillion dollars of the economy. You just can't do it. This is a terrible idea. And say what you will about Schultz's politics. I'm sure he's a n- nut job on climate change and all kinds of stuff. He does understand how to read a profit and loss statement. He, he does know how to read a balance sheet, which really separates him from a lot of the progressive left these days who just think that it's all just a question of if you will it, it will be the way you want it. It's not the way the world works. It's not the way it's going to work either, no matter who's in power. But so this, uh, we'll see what ends up happening here with Stacey Abrams. I'll talk to you more about Joe Biden later on in the show. We'll, we'll, we'll save Creepy Joe today for... For hour three, I don't think we have to dive too deep into that one right now. It's uh, he's got his video out. If he could say that nothing has happened, I'm sure he would. But it's really hard when there's video and there's photos. You're not really it's not alleged at that point, is it? I mean, that's why Al Frank look, Al Franken's oh, the only reason he was toast was because there was photo of him groping somebody. And if it was just an allegation, they would have let him stay. But there's photos of Biden being a creepy, gropey weirdo. We got more coming up. 
There's absolutely a crisis on, on the border. Without a doubt, there's a national security crisis, there's a humanitarian crisis, and there's what we like to call a policy crisis. You can ask any expert from anyone that has dedicated their life to border security, to security of this country, they will tell you that we're, we're almost beyond crisis. We, our immigration system is, is near failure. Near failure. It's interesting that you had there the acting chief of Border Patrol in the Laredo sector say that because the first line of my piece last week on the Hill.com reporting on the border was the immigration system is at the border is failing. This is failure. This is not a system that is just having some that has some kinks that need to be worked out. This is heading toward catastrophe. In fact, the acting ICE director described this. The ICE director is describing it as a meltdown. I know you can make some jokes with that, but it's a very serious issue. Play 13. It's, a, it's an absolute crisis down there. It has humanitarian aspects. It has border security aspects. Uh, this policy can't continue. You, you t he talked about the overcrowding. Uh, the, the system's in a meltdown. Um, it's just getting worse day by day. CBP reported yesterday they have over 12,000 people in custody. Uh, we're maxed out at, at, in ICE capacity. We're looking for more detention beds across the country. Uh, the system is overflowing. Nearly 130,000 families released into the interior of the United States just since December of last year. So the, the system's in a meltdown. 130,000 families. That means at a minimum, at a minimum, since December, 200. And 60,000 people who are not legally entitled to be in this country and will not receive asylum, but will just stay in the country as illegals, they are now here for good. And some of you are probably saying, Buck, it's, it's more than that. Yeah, some of them are showing up because I saw it. Three, four kids with them. You're having adult males with three or four children they show up with, uh, you know, adult females, three or four children. So. You know, a, a rough a rough estimate is probably 2.5 would be a fair guess for how many, numerically speaking, are coming across. I know there's not such a thing as, you know, half a person, but you, know, you probably have a little over two on average. So, you know, let's call it 300,000, 300,000 people led into the country, maybe 350. That's a lot, folks. That's a lot. And then that's being added to the pool of 20 million that are already in the country illegally. You know, when, when is it, you know, I, I like to step back and, and ask, when can we all agree that it's, it's actually too much? When is it apparent that this is no longer a sustainable and acceptable way forward? You know, at, at, at what point in this whole process are we allowed to look at the Democrats and say, okay, do you guys at least, are, are you with us now? Do you agree now that this is too much? Do you agree that we really have reach this point and I, I don't think that they have an answer how much is too much there's no such thing they don't think there is such a thing I also want to know you know as as I'm someone who's currently dealing with the very labyrinthine visa process of going to a foreign country uh, and just filing you know paperwork with more paperwork with more paperwork uh, I, I want to know the people that are stuck in the legal immigration process right now. I wonder how they feel about this. I wonder how those who have been playing the rule, playing by the rules and trying to come into this country the right way and spend a lot of time and a lot of money. They could just I, I wonder if they would take the deal of, well, I'll just show up at the border. 
I'll be processed within, got to have a kid with you, but I'll get processed within 48 hours and I'll be led in the American interior and no one, and I'll never have to worry about this again. If, if I ever run into a problem, I just tell immigration, I'm waiting for my court date. I'm waiting for my court date. You know, after four or five years of waiting for your court date, you know what? It's not going to be a court date. There's going to be amnesty. That's where this is all heading right now. We are not heading for a secure border. We are heading for amnesty. And some on the left are, are being honest about this. When leftists tell you who they are, you should listen. And you're hearing voices now who are coming forward because they think the political winds have shifted in their favor. You're hearing voices who are coming forward specifically to advocate for decriminalization of illegal immigration, which is just a fancy way of saying open borders. Here is Julian Castro of the Castro Brothers. Play 11. Instead of building a wall or closing the border, we should choose compassion instead of cruelty. The feeling from this administration is, is that we are in a full-blown crisis and that they are overwhelmed by it. How do you think? Uh, you know, that I don't believe their narrative. Uh, I don't believe the BS. We should decriminalize uh, people who are coming here, crossing the border. We need to increase the number of refugees that we take into this country. And if we're not careful, if we don't get this right, uh, in 20 or 30 years, this nation is going to be begging for immigrants to come mm. to this country. We're taking in a million immigrants a year right now, legally. If we don't get this right, I mean, this everything this guy says is wrong. Everything this guy says is a lie. A million a year legally, folks. You know, there is an argument to be made that that's actually a lot from an, uh, an assimilation perspective. And people say, Buck, oh, you can't say that. Why? Why is endless immigration considered a good thing? What other country is doing this? Point to me, you know, show me a prosperous, socially and politically cohesive nation state that has a open borders policy or a near open borders policy. And, you know, show me that and then I'll change my mind about this. It does not exist. We're the only country in the world that is expected to just take in population of immigrant after population of immigrant, illegal, legal, I mean, just just masses and masses of immigrants into the system and not chosen by the way for skills for ability some of them are i know but overwhelmingly it's illegals and family reunification which is just chain migration same thing right you know one person gets here and then it's i'm going to sponsor the next you know 10 members of my family to come here so really when you let one person in, in some cases you're letting five six seven people in that's what ends up happening and this idea that we have to take more asylum seekers uh, or rather more refugees well we've already taken a few hundred thousand of them I mean, how many are we supposed to take and they're not refugees they're not refugees these just the lies that people trot out there so shamelessly i mean this is somebody who you know castro is one of the brothers i think is running for president i think it's this one julian but you know the that, the, that they're making this case in this way I mean, this is where the democrats are this is where the media is you know the, the media it just loves, they, they take every opportunity to preen for the cameras on the issue of illegal immigration. Oh, I just, we just, we, you know, we need more people to do menial labor for us or else what will we ever do? You know, who's going to make sure the country club still looks nice? These are the people that are going on MSNBC and acting like there's no problem here. 
And then, you, know, you just add this into the list, too, of what they've lied to you about, what they have not been willing to tell the American people the truth about. The truth is that we have a crisis on our southern border. That is the truth. It has been the truth for months. It has been obvious for months. And yet, what's the response you get from Democrats to pretend that they can just either ignore it or that now that it's too late for them to take action, they want to just swoop in and say, you know what, let's not fix it. Let's just turn this whole, let's just flip the whole table over. Let's forget about enforcing immigration law. Let's forget about the rule of law at our southern border, period. Uh, just this, this story, we're going to stay on it because it's not going anywhere except, well, as I've been telling you, it's going to get worse. It is going to get worse. You're going to have a million, you're going to have a million illegals in the country this year. During the Trump presidency, I, I don't, I wonder what the political ramifications of this will be. I, I don't know if this will be held against Trump by his base or if there'll be a sense that, my gosh, this is even worse than we realized. And Trump has been right all along because on the border issue, he has been right. I mean, his instincts are correct. His policy choices on this have been the right ones. But the judiciary is against him. The media is against him. The Democrats are playing defense for illegals all the time. He doesn't have enough power to go it alone. So I don't know how this gets fixed. And I really firmly believe it doesn't get fixed. If the drugs don't stop, Mexico can stop them if they want. We're going to tariff the cars. The cars are very big. And if that doesn't work, we're going to close the border. But I think that'll work. That's massive numbers of dollars. So if we don't see uh, people apprehended and brought back to their countries, if we see these massive caravans coming up, the last three days it hasn't happened since I said we're closing the border. The only thing, frankly, better but less drastic than closing the border is to tariff the cars coming in. And I will do it, just like you, you know I will do it. I don't play games. We're going to give them a one-year warning, and if the drugs don't stop or largely stop, we're going to put tariffs on Mexico and products, in particular cars. The whole ballgame is cars. I don't know if this is going to work. I wish I, wish I could tell you otherwise. I don't, I don't see how this is going to work. Uh, the Mexican government maybe will be willing to divert caravans and do some assistance to prevent uh, migrant flows, but they're not going to. They couldn't stop all the migrants. Remember, they're being snuck uh, snuck into the country or snuck at least to the border by the cartels to begin with. They couldn't and I think wouldn't try to stop all of that. I don't believe that they will try to stop all of that. And when he says that the drugs have got to stop, I mean, you know, that I mean, the cartels could care less about any of this. In fact, even if you were to shut down the border for a few days, which I believe is what happened after the murder of DEA agent Kiki Camarena, which was uh, memorialized in the show Narcos season four, I believe that the border was close to or more or less shut down for a few days. All that does is drive the street price up as soon as the spigots are back on and the drugs are flowing. Because people still want their drugs. So you're, you're not going to starve the cartels. I mean, the cartels, one of the problems back in the old days with Pablo Escobar that's been written about is they had this issue of spoilage. The cartels had to deal with the spoilage issue, not of their product, the product they could always move very quickly, of their cash and that they were losing millions of dollars because of rats eating 
these stacks of $100 bills that they were just burying underground for the Medellin cartel. The rats were eating the cash. So I do not think that you're going to starve the cartels anytime soon. Shutting down the border, they'll just mean that they'll find other ways. I mean, they get in illegally anyway. It'll be harder for them for sure, and they'll they'll suffer a little bit, but I don't think that will stop. The other, the other part of me, though, feels like, well, at least Trump is using the leverage that he has and is, and is getting serious about this and has decided that this is not going to be an issue that he allows to just linger on as is. You know, you want to get Mexico's attention, stop untaxed remittances from getting sent back into Mexico. You want to get the attention of illegals in this country, stop untaxed remittances from getting sent back to people in the home country. You know, we, we should not be subsidizing other countries' economies, and that is what we are doing. And people who say, oh, Buck, they, you know, the, the, the illegals do the jobs Americans won't do. There's been so much brainwashing, so much propaganda on this issue. What do they think? I mean, I just wonder, uh, you know, for, for many of the illegals who are here who are doing, uh, you know, what would be menial labor, unskilled labor, whatever the preferred terminology is. What happens when those people get into their late 60s, early 70s, early 80s? There are millions of them. What happens then? Do they do they get Medicare? Do do we add them to the Medicare rolls? Do they do we so we pay for all their their health care? Is that what's supposed to happen? Um, what's their retirement? Do they get Social Security? Some of them will have been living here for 30, maybe 40 years at that point. So do they just get Social Security, Medicare because they're here? Or, or what do we do? Do we deny them federal benefits as old people? I mean, you know, we're, we're humane. Americans want people to be okay and to be safe. But we also don't like being taken advantage of. Does anyone, does any Democrat have a plan? Oh, I, they do have a plan. They just won't say it yet. Amnesty. The plan is amnesty. That's it. That's always been the plan. Everything else from the Democrats, every other effort, whether it's a, um, a quick surge in deportations, additional funding at the border, those are head fakes. Those are uh, chips that they're putting on the, on the table so that they can win the whole pot and the whole pot is amnesty. They just want amnesty. And then, and then it's all over, folks. Because once you amnesty that many people, think about the political incentive to try to give them the vote. You think Democrats are going to pass that up? No chance they will. No chance. This is going to be a test of, of Trump's deal-making. And this is going, you know, I'll say this for him. At least he's flipped over, he's flipped over the log, so to speak, so we can see what's underneath. I mean, we now realize how corrupt and how rotten the immigration system and, and how much exploitation of it goes on with, with illegal immigrants. We finally understand this now. I think it's taken us a long time to get there. Um, and the national conversation has shifted dramatically. I don't want to leave out that there's the possibility of a major deal with China. I'm going to talk to you about China espionage in the third hour that's coming up and this story out of Mar-a-Lago. Um, but remember, Trump has made one of his signature issues getting a major trade deal with China That'll get them to be a more substantive and, uh, well, scratch substantive, a more fair-minded trade partner. Um, that's what that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's trying to accomplish. Here's what the president says about it. It's got to be a good deal. It's got to be a good. It's got to be a great deal. It's got to be a great look. We've been losing over many years, four, five, 
$600 billion a year. We're losing, a few years ago, 200 routinely to China. We can't do that. We're going to turn it around. It's got to be a great deal. If it's not a great deal, we're not doing it. But it's going very well. It's a very complex deal. It's a very big deal. It's one of the biggest deals ever made, maybe the biggest deal ever made. It'll be uh, a great deal for our farmers. Uh, technology, intellectual, property theft. Everything is covered. There's not a thing that's not covered. We could have made a quickie, but we're in a very good position. Our economy is way up. China is not way up. Could either make a very good deal or we're not going to make a deal at all. This is not an an errant or, or a throwaway point at all. The fundamental problem with Obama's approach to the Iran deal was it was get a deal no matter what. Because Trump actually knows how to how to get deals and how to negotiate He understands that if you are not willing to walk away, you are not negotiating. You are just haggling over the price. Right. You need to be able to say, I'm not going to buy at any price because of X or I'm not going to do this because of Y. Not, okay. I'll do it. So just, you know, how much do you want from me? You you don't walk into a used car lot and say, I'm not leaving here without a car, sir, because then they've got you. And that's what Obama did with the Iran deal. So Trump may not get this China deal done, but if he does, I mean, it could be really momentous for the economy. I think you'll see a big surge in, uh, well, certainly in the markets, but just also in in confidence in the in the direction of our economy. And this could be a really big win, and I, I hope it's the case. And I know that U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and the Chinese Vice Premier are hammering this out this week. But just remember this. They said Trump was crazy for even trying this. I mean, they've been suggesting all along that Trump had no idea what he was doing. And I really do believe he's gotten closer to a major, major uh, agreement here with the Chinese than any of his predecessors could have dreamed of. This didn't start with Jesse Smollett. This started when we wanted to try and make sure that when officers received a battery in the performance of their duties, that the felony charges would be placed. And we continually had problems getting those charges approved. And they were continuously denied, even though that's what the law requires. The difficulty that State's Attorney Fox has imposed on our assistance to get us felony charges on, on dangerous criminals. And many times, the hoops that we have to go through to try to get a felony charge, and then most of the time, they're either not approved or the charges are dismissed in court without an officer's uh, opinion without notifying the police agency or the police officer themselves. So basically, in essence, she's putting criminals back on the street, either during the process or not charging them at all, and allowing them to go back on the street and commit their crimes again. So what we have here are some police chiefs for the city of Chicago uh, and its environs who have stepped forward to say that they have no confidence in state prosecutor our county state's attorney, Kim Fox. Here's the Chicago Sun-Times with the, the latest. The end of the Jussie Smollett prosecution was the straw that broke the camel's back for a group of suburban police chiefs set to gather Thursday afternoon with members of the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police to announce a no-confidence vote in the leadership of Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Dwayne Malema, head of the North Suburban Association of Chiefs of Police, representing more than 30 departments, said a no-confidence vote taken Tuesday was unanimous. In a letter sent to Fox, Malema, who is police chief in uh, Park Ridge, 
expressed concern over prosecutors' refusal to file felony charges in certain crimes. Quote, the abrupt dropping of the 16 indictments against Empire actor Jussie Smollett during an unannounced court hearing is the latest and most egregious example of the failure by you and your staff to hold offenders accountable. Uh, This is quite a public mutiny against this uh, prosecutor because you, you have to keep in mind that police and prosecutors you know, are working very closely together. The department and the district attorney's office are generally very collegial and they don't unnecessarily air out this kind of, of dirty laundry. But what Kim Fox did, and we all know it's because of connections and person, uh, her personal feelings about Smollett and her personal feelings about what Kim Fox did was egregious, to borrow a word from the uh, fraternal Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, it was just too much. It's too far that the law was not going to apply to Jussie Smollett. And then that little punk would turn around and suggest that he was still innocent, that he has no compunction whatsoever about perpetuating this lie, that there's nothing in him that has the, the, the dignity and the respect and the, the self-worth to take responsibility for what he did and and view what had happened in terms of the charges getting dismissed for reasons of pure bias. I mean, this is just pure bias. But instead of thanking his lucky stars and saying, wow, I'm, I'm, this is amazing and I'm so sorry it never happened again, he went out and started lecturing us. He went out and thought that this was a time to say that those who were, uh, you know, didn't believe him should have. And that he's been honest all along. I mean, this guy's sick. He's really got a problem. And that there would be any people in the Democrat power structure that would stand. Remember, they're not standing behind him to say, all right, be lenient on him. They want him to get off scot-free. They want him to suffer no consequence, zero, no consequences whatsoever as a result of this. Uh, at least no legal consequences. And that was just too much for these cops. And I'm sure that if you were to look into some of the other decisions that are being made here uh, by Kim Fox, based on what these officers are saying, um, there's, you know, there, she's dropping felonies against people that shouldn't uh, shouldn't have the felonies dropped. You know, but this is a this is where you start to get into a social justice element and a social justice application of the law. This is where you start to hear about how uh, the, the criminal laws are inherently racist or are enforced in racist ways. And therefore, there needs to be a rebalancing that occurs in the prosecutor's offices. And th- you go down a very dangerous path here. You know, there are some things that we should we do as a society and we should, as people, all agree on. And laws that prevent murder, assault, rape, theft, these are foundational agreements in a in a civilization, in a society. These are things that no matter who you are, where you are in a society, you should want the state, which claims for itself a monopoly on violence, a monopoly on force that is a defining characteristic of a state that they will protect us. And on these core, we're not talking about campaign finance here. We're not talking about, you know, 
tax return issues. Oh, Trump's tax returns. We're talking about those clear-cut law enforcement issues, real felonies for real criminals. You're not going to enforce those because there's a disparate impact on one ethnic group or several ethnic groups in society. You're going to start to scale back the prosecutions you're doing. This has happened in places. This is what's going on. This is what happened in Broward County, where you had the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. The decision was made that the school discipline policies that would result in criminal referrals to police because people would bring knives or they would punch somebody or they that that was having a a too negative an impact on minority students, particularly black and, and Hispanic students. And so they wanted to eliminate criminal penalties as a means of achieving greater, you guessed it, social justice. And, uh, you know, Democrats, this is where we have a this is where there's a real uh, once again, you know, I mentioned abortion. There's some place we have a real separation. And, you know, I don't care what skin color somebody is. I don't care what uh, what religious background, what economic situation they're in. All of us. All of us must be held to account for felony violations of the law. I mean, real felonies, felonies where there's a victim, where someone's been hurt, where damage has been done, not malum prohibitum, which is just when the state says it's bad, but malum in se, legal terms for bad because you know it's bad. Kim Fox, I can tell you this, is letting people off for things that are malum in se, that are bad and you know it's bad, but I'm sure it's a lot of drug stuff, but people that always, you know, I, I disagree with with the the notion that people shouldn't be held to account for selling uh, uh, you know, illegal drugs, because even though I, I believe in marijuana legalization, marijuana, marijuana can't kill you. Can't do it. Can't do it. No one's ever overdosed. No one's ever died from marijuana. People die from cocaine, opioids, heroin all the time, all the time. If you're selling those drugs illegally to people, you are putting human beings' lives at risk. Now, I've had to mention before that I'm always uh, a little irked when I hear, particularly in, in the hip-hop community, there are people that talk about how they used to sell crack to make you know, ends meet, and this is almost a point of pride, and I say, well, when they were selling crack, did they ever ask the people they were selling crack to if, you know, they ask women that bought crack from them, is, are you sure you're not pregnant, by the way? Do they ask women who bought crack, you know, are, are you selling your body or doing other really desperate things to get the money for this crack? You know, so selling these kinds of addictive drugs is not something that should just go unpunished because a lot of people make that decision. I'm sorry. And for Kim Fox to have the fraternal order of police turn on her like this, I'm, I'm sure the more you dig into this, you just find out that you know, she's been giving people a pass because she's a she's a leftist and a and a social justice true believer. One more point on this. A reporter today, I watched the press conference that they gave, that the police chiefs gave, and a reporter said, Why aren't there any black police chiefs on the stage? I heard that question asked. And I don't have an I don't have an answer. And I heard the answer they gave, which is that the police chief said everybody was invited, some people showed up, some people didn't. I really hope that in the city of Chicago, because I know it's not true across the country. I know it wasn't true in the NYPD when I worked there. But I hope that the city of Chicago now isn't being polarized along racial lines 
where some people think that the law shouldn't apply even when there are violations of it just because they view it as hurting their side, hurting the side of the left, minorities, Democrats. And so, you know, it, it's, it's in a sense the OJ effect, right? Why wasn't OJ guilty? Because of racism. But OJ killed two people. So why wasn't OJ guilty? Because of racism. Is that what we're getting at here? Is, is Jesse Smollett not just not guilty, but let off entirely because he's, uh, he's black and openly gay and therefore a victim and therefore special? This, this erodes confidence in the justice system. This erodes some of the most important things that we agree on as people in a society, which is that we are all bound by laws and we are all to be held accountable for serious violations of law. At least held accountable. I'm not saying Smollett should have gone to prison for 20 years. The guy should have had to take a guilty plea and it should have been on the record. What he did was wrong and he should have to pay for every cent of that investigation in Chicago and probably spend a couple weeks in jail. That would have been what I would have given him. We'll be right back. I think it's more so that like there are students on this campus who don't feel comfortable with it. And so then it doesn't really matter what other students think if it makes someone comfortable. I mean, colonial is kind of a touchy yeah. word. Um, I did sign the petition. I do understand that it is offensive. Yeah, well, I think the word colonial like evokes an image of like white men coming to take people's land. But like the whole like colonial thing is like a little white supremacisty. It's a little white supremacisty. George Washington University, this is right here where I am in the swamp in D.C., one of the most expensive schools in the country, by the way. Uh, George Washington University is having a bit of its own controversy because they want the students are voting to remove the Colonials nickname from their school mascot. Uh, this is where this is where there's, a, 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 I think, an important takeaway. These social justice obsessed leftists can only think what they think because they have either a very limited or very um, narrow understanding of history. These social justice leftists are completely and utterly incapable of telling you, you know, colonial history. Tell me about the colonial period. Tell me about colonial societies. You know, if I were to ask them, for example, were the Aztecs a colonial people? They would say, no, of course not. Oh, really? Because the Aztecs enslaved millions of people. Were the Mayans in the New World a colonial people? Well, of course they were. Right? They colonized other territories. They took people over. Is the, is the entirety of the Islamic world a colonial project? Oh, no, Buck, that's not, you know, Islam is a non-white, predominantly non-white religion. And they're not. Oh, really? Because it, it was built on expansion, conquest and conversion, often by the sword. All of what is now the Islamic world was formerly the non-Islamic world. And much of it was taken by force. So isn't that a colonial project? If they knew anything about radical Islam, I think that these leftists would understand that in current jihadist propaganda, they refer to southern Spain. And I mean on the Internet, in the chat rooms today, among the jihadis. They'll refer to southern Spain as Andalusia. Because it used to be territory of the caliphate. So that, and they have not yet given that up. They, they have an irredentist tendency. They want that land back. 
So, and who else is, is, is colonialist? I mean, when do we go back? When do we go back and say, well, they were, he- they were here first. They have the land first. There are different native peoples. One of the reasons why we don't know uh, who conquered who is because they didn't have written language. So that slows things down. They also hadn't mastered the wheel uh, in the new world. But nonetheless, what was, I'm just talking about the civilization, the technological progress, folks. It's just, just a fact. So what are we to make of this? I mean, why is colonial inherently offensive because of that? So is the entire, let's say, 15th century to 20th century, is that just an offensive period of time? I mean, they they don't really think through this. They're stuck in this just deeply superficial understanding of history. This is like when I try to tell people about the white slave trade, meaning the slave trade of whites in the Mediterranean. Oh, Buck, you know, that's not a... Really? It was millions of people. It lasted hundreds of years. In terms of geographic scope and raw numbers, larger than the transatlantic African slave trade. You had Muslim corsairs from the coast of North Africa all the way to Istanbul itself who would sail as far north as Ireland, as far north as Iceland, and seize people from the coasts bring them to North Africa to die in the mines or the women to be used in harems as sex slaves. That went on for a couple hundred years. They don't even know the full extent of the numbers. There were whole societies that lived in fear and terror of being too close to the coast because of that happening. Now, I'm just, I just think that's an interesting part of history. Oh, it's by the way, why we went to our first foreign war, which you know from the recent surge in interest in the Barbary Wars in this country. We went to war with Islamic states because they wouldn't stop enslaving us. So, you know, so we're going to say this is, it's, it's offensive why? It's offensive how? It reminds me of, you know, Lord Jeff, the mascot from my own school, Amherst. Lord Jeffrey Amherst. Someone who allegedly gave small pl- uh, smallpox infected blankets to the Native Americans, but they didn't understand microbiology then, so I don't know how they would have known that the blankets had smallpox. I just, I don't, this, people have said it was the first instance of biological warfare recorded. I, I don't know. I need to see the records. But now we're not the, my college is, you know, we're not the colonials. We were the Lord Jeffs, who was a colonial overlord, so this kind of hits close to home. We're the mastodons. <laughs> Does that, that sound like a fat cow. That did not sound like a mastodon. I got to work on my mastodon noise. But then again, who knows? If a mastodon makes a noise in the ice age and there's no one around, did it happen? Existential. What? All right, hour three coming up here, team, in just a moment. We have much more coming your way. Stay with me. In my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I, I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And, you know, social norms have begun to change, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. That was the uh, Biden mea culpa video that he's put out there. Um, Biden 
deciding that uh, he is not really in a position to fight these allegations. He's just in a position to say sorry. He's in a position to uh, tell people that he's not going to do this stuff again. I've tried to be fair to this. I know we've covered it uh, a few times here on the show. I've tried to be fair to creepy old Joe. It's not It's not criminal. Shouldn't be talked about in that way. It's not assault. It's And, and I, also, I don't like this when people say, oh, if you try to hug somebody and they don't want to hug you, you know, if it's an honest mistake, that's not assault. That's just miscommunication. Right. I mean, th- there are there are some lines here of of good faith that we have to maintain, you know, whether you're a guy on a first date who leans in for a kiss and uh, doesn't work out your way. You know, as long as when the person leans away, you go, oh, sorry, you know, you don't decide it. Or if you're going to hug a colleague because you think you're at the hug stage, but you're really just at the handshake stage. Ever come on. You probably some of you aren't huggers. Some of you probably are. But you've probably been there, right? I'm always like, uh, my. There's some people you know you can hug in the office, and there are other people you're like, is are we are we at the hug level yet? And then if you want to be very European, very French, you can do the mwah, mwah, the kiss on the cheek, kiss one, kiss two, oh parfait. I gotta go to Paris, man. It's been too long. It's been too long. Well, I can't have any croissant, which is just so disappointing. Uh, but Biden's obviously got an issue here because. The left is able to cover up for a lot, but when you become a point of mockery, when you are someone that that is going to get made fun made fun of in a way that they can't make go away, that I think is a real drag. And that's that. For example, with Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren's whole you know DNA debacle, uh, you know she, that that wasn't criminal. It wasn't some some big deal. It wasn't that she did something terrible. It just showed really, really bad judgment. And when you're showing bad judgment in that way, there are people who won't be able to get past the fact that maybe they don't want you to have the, uh, the nuclear codes, you know, uh, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi is trying to have it both ways here. She's still saying, Oh, well, what Biden did is not great, but it also isn't the worst thing in the world. It's, well, I'll let, I'll let Nancy Pelosi speak for herself. Play three. I don't think it's disqualifying because I don't, I think it disqualifying is with what your intention is. I do think this about communication in general beyond this. I'm, I'm a member of the straight arm club. I mean, I'm a straight armor. <laughs> I just pretend you have a cold and I have a cold. <laughs> Yeah, Nancy, not exactly the warmest person, is she? You know, Nancy Nancy really likes to treat everybody like the help, I think. And that's that's her approach to life. But she's a progressive Democrat, so she gets away with it. Speaking of progressive Democrats who get away with things, ooh, smooth transition, Buck. Some of you may recall that I interviewed Alyssa Milano, whose finest work as an actress came when she was about 13 years old and was in the timeless classic Commando starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Alyssa Milano is uh, someone who's been now in, uh, you know, she's been in movies, most well-known, I think, for the show Charmed, which is about witches, which makes sense. And I sat down to interview her at her home, and she didn't realize that I was very conservative because I work for The Hill, which is mostly staffed by liberals. And... So I, I sit down with her, and as I told you, the omen of all omens to begin an interview. We're in this ornate living room in this canyon north of, of uh, Los Angeles, 
gated community, gates on gates on gates and security guards and the whole thing. And I sit down and this decrepit little chihuahua comes kind of limping over and urinates. This is right. I mean, you, the cameras were all set up and roll urinates, you know, about two feet from my foot just decides to just just you know, lift its little tiny wrinkly leg and just let it rip right there. And that was pretty much all you needed to know about how that interview was going to go. You know, I just sat there because over the course of it, she's looking at me, I could tell she goes, oh, wait. He's a, he's not really he's not a journo journalist. He's a he's a person who thinks and asks questions for himself. That's not I don't like this. She did not really enjoy that and complained. I was entirely professional in that interview. Every question I asked her was fair. I didn't interrupt her and she complained after. That's why I really don't mind going after a bit on the cuz cuz that's just cowardice. I mean that's just nonsense. She tried to I mean she tried to complain to my bosses which is hilarious. They could care less. Um and these aren't even my radio bosses who are the ones that I really care what they think. Uh, you know, she tried to complain at the Hill. And, you know, I just said, I, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, this is I, I, not only am I not. I mean, I would never even apologize in a million years. But I'm like, I'm not even going to take this seriously. This is just a baby. She's just a big baby. But and not not particularly bright, by the way. If we're if we're going to have this conversation about politics, I'm allowed to say things like that because it's true. But she's one of these people who's trying to organize a boycott against Georgia, the state that I was just in earlier this week. And state rep Dominic Lariccia had a little bit of a testy back and forth with her uh, when she's, uh, you know, she's down in the state of Georgia trying to cause problems here because they want to restrict abortion. Good for you, Georgia, by the way. Good for you. Here's how that went. What district of Georgia are you from? Uh, I work in, in Georgia. Do you I vote in Georgia? Georgia? I don't vote in Georgia. I was but just there's, wondering what district you were from. There's 30 people outside that do vote in Georgia that okay. I was going to but, escort but you in. Don't vote in Excuse me. Okay. Don't interrupt me. That I was going to escort in, but they wouldn't let me escort in. So that's like, a I no, that. you don't vote in Georgia. No, but the people that work on my crew, the 90,000 people that the entertainment industry actually employs, do. So thank you. What's your name? Dominic Morris. So district one, nothing? I just answered you. These are the men that are voting on what goes on inside my uterus. This guy right here, this guy. The men voting on what's going on inside her uterus, she says. Well, what they're really voting on is a heartbeat bill that would forbid abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected because a human being doesn't have two hearts. A human being has one heart. So if you have two hearts, you know what you have? Two human beings. So this would be no abortions after six weeks. And Alyssa Milano is obviously a, a an abortion radical. I mean, believes that abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy for any reason or no reason, and is trying to inflict that belief and that as a legal regime on the state of Georgia. I hope the state of Georgia is able to stand its ground and continue on the right path here. Yep, Alyssa Milano, not a very good actress, not a very good activist, but there you have it. She's trying to tell other people what to do in their states, and uh, she's running around. This, this is how, unfortunately, people that are used to getting a lot of attention, especially as they age a little bit and aren't quite as, let's just be honest, this is Hollywood, not quite as marketable perhaps as they once were. This is a way of staying relevant. This is a way of burnishing one's brand. And I just wish people would treat this with the moral seriousness it deserves and not just use it as a grandstanding opportunity. But 
We're talking about actors and actresses here, folks, so that's not going to change. This is turning into quite a story here. Feds are investigating possible Chinese spying at Mar-a-Lago and Cindy Yang, according to sources. This is published in the Miami Herald today. So here's what's going on. You got the feds looking at the possible Chinese intelligence operation targeting Donald Trump and his private Palm Beach Club, Mar-a-Lago. The counterintelligence probe was, quote, turbocharged on Saturday when U.S. Secret Service agents arrested a Chinese woman, Yujing Zhang, after they said she tried to enter the club with a bevy of electronic devices, including a thumb drive infected with malicious malware. The ongoing investigation has recently focused on Lee Cindy Yang. Yang is a South Florida massage parlor entrepreneur who has promoted events at Mar-a-Lago with ads targeting Chinese business executives hoping to gain access to Trump and his family. The investigation spearheaded by the FBI began before the Herald revealed Yang's business of selling access last month and focused on other Chinese nationals doing business in the region. Before her arrest, Zhang was unknown to federal authorities. Now investigators with the FBI Counterintelligence Division in South Florida are trying to figure out who Zhang is, whether she is involved in a possible Chinese intelligence mission, and whether there are links to Yang's social events at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Huh. And this is, this is very interesting. Um, people are looking at this now and they're wondering what the real extent of this espionage, this spying may be, uh, you know, alleged espionage. We don't really know, but here's, here's what I can, what I can tell you without any, without any doubt. Um, the amount of spying that is going on involving China and the United States is mind blowing. And it's happening all the time. And the Chinese, much like during the Cold War and the era of the U.S. duking it out with the Soviet Union, the Chinese, I think, recognize the stakes and have an understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. And we take this view as the hegemon, the United States, the one true global superpower right now, that we don't want to cause any rifts. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want any issues. You know, we just want to honestly get along with China if we could. I mean, if the U.S. had its way, we would. And because we've been doing this, we've been doing this for decades. We've helped the Chinese. We've done all kinds stretching back to the 80s. And really, the Chinese growth explosion has occurred in my lifetime. It's really over the course of the last almost 40 years that they went from a $70 billion to a $7 trillion economy. And they are now you know, churning out products and services and in a way that is, I think, hard to fathom. One of the reasons why I'm so interested in, in going to China is to see this for myself. Buck goes to China. It'd be like Nixon goes to China, only cooler. But the fact is that while we were trying to deal with the Soviets, who were our most recent near-peer competitor on the global stage, they were very aggressive with their espionage efforts against us. And in the early stages, we did figure it out, and my forefathers at the CIA, and you know, this was really the, the whole 
this is the the existence of the CIA and the intelligence community for the first 50 or so years of their existence was all about combating the Soviets. I mean, that was the one and only real concern at the, at the highest, highest level. Um, and all the different iterations of what fighting the Soviets meant, you know, the conflict over the third world, the proxy wars, everything from Angola to Vietnam to Cuba to Nicaragua to you name it. But we had, at least for the first decade or so post-World War II, this attitude of, you know, we should try to be friends with the Soviets, our intelligentsia, our journalists, uh, a lot of people that work at the State Department, a lot of people that were up high in the government bureaucracy, they really didn't see uh, Russia or the Soviet Union at the time as a threat. They saw it as a partner that just had to be wooed. Meanwhile, the Soviets were stealing everything from us they possibly could and preparing to overtake and, if necessary, eradicate us. And I worry that we haven't really learned that lesson in our dealings with the Chinese. And, and the more I see in Chinese strategy vis-a-vis the United States, the more I've got to tell you, Trump is right on this issue. And he does not get enough credit for it. Trump's approach to China, which is that we need to get into it and get tough and, you know, show some teeth on this stuff and stop letting the Chinese steal our intellectual property, you know, rip us off on trade and and grow rapidly. I mean, if if tariffs were such a, a incredibly stupid and self-defeating idea, somebody tell me how the Chinese government with its state sponsored corporations, which is what it has, state state uh, enterprises, state sponsored enterprises, uh, why they've been able to become now Fortune 100 companies why they've been able to grow at a pace that blows every other country in the world really out of the water, every other major uh, country. If it was so dumb for them, if there was no benefit from what they were doing, well, then why have they been so successful and why do they keep doing it? Trump instinctually understands, and this is where, you know, he does, this is another place. Trump does not get credit for, because he's, look, he's a shark. He's a business shark. And I, I don't say that in a disparaging way. I say it in an objective and honest way. You know, he looks for opportunity and opportunity is often getting a better deal than the other guy, which doesn't mean that you're cheating him. It just means that you are using your leverage. He understands that process. He's been doing this for a long time. And some people say that he's been too rough in his dealings, you know, wah, boo, hoo, whatever. Truth is, Trump sees what China's been doing in the United States. And he understands that, in this case, the shark's on the other side of the table and that our government's on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrats stretching back decades have taken this approach to China of everything we can do to help you and we will not punish you. We will not take real action in response to your uh, aggression, to your theft, to all the things that everyone knows is going. No one denies this is happening, which is, I think is so fascinating. I mean, no one, no one says that the, this is not a thing. It's just a question of how do you respond to this thing? How do you respond to what's going on here? And administration after administration has said, well, you know, China's an important trading partner. And it's really a, a chamber of commerce view of how to deal with the Chinese. And now we're seeing that there might be some sophisticated or semi-sophisticated uh, spying operation going on involving Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that there's, I mean, I, I don't know how much I can or, or should get into what, is known about the way that governments like China operate in terms of their 
uh, espionage efforts abroad. I mean, some of that, I think, has to be kept kind of quiet. So the public can't know about all of it. But it is widespread. And I don't know what they're going to find in this Mar-a-Lago probe, but it's not something we should just skip past and and assume the authorities have a handle on this one. There is still, I think, a very... Um, there, there's not enough of, a, of an imperative. There's not a sense of urgency. That's the word I was trying to find. There's not enough urgency in dealing with the aggressive offensive maneuvers of the Chinese government vis-a-vis the United States. We still think that we can take this, oh, it'll all just be okay if we're nice to them attitude, and that's not going to work. Trump is taking a different approach, but we'll see, first of all, hopefully Trump has four more years after the next two, or he's got, whatever, six more years. But if you get a Democrat in there who's going to lie down for China, we we may lose whatever advantage we have now and never get it back, and I, I mean that. And we better wake up about the Chinese espionage effort because it is the most sophisticated, wide-reaching theft of intellectual property, the most sweeping information grab in the history of nation-state-to-nation-state spying. There's there's nothing uh, that even comes close to it. The only stuff that you could even talk about really in the same, same paragraph would be what the Soviets did to us. And what the Soviets did to us was extreme during the Cold War in terms of theft of information. So we will keep an eye on this one, team, and I'll have more for you as we move along. I don't think I ever gave you my final words on the lost city of the monkey god. I I may have mentioned this, but it just came up again recently because I was thinking about where I might be traveling in the next few months. And there was uh, there was one place in particular that came up that would have required malaria medicine, something that I've had to take uh, several times in the past and very much want to avoid having to do again. Uh, although if it's take the medicine or get malaria, trust me, you want to take the medicine. So Lost City of the Monkey God is about an archaeological expedition to Honduras, and in, it's in the last 10 years or so, to find what was known as the uh, Ciudad Blanco, the White City which was a Maya-like civilization in uh, an area of Honduras called Musquitia, which is incredibly uh, rural, unexplored, and almost like a a lost area of the world. There's really nobody who goes in there, uh, with the exception of some drug traffickers who might put down in the jungle in their trek from South America, where the cocaine is grown, cocaine is grown primarily now in Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia. Uh, those are the main countries, and and I think a bit in Venezuela, too, although we don't have great visibility into that. And yes, I know some of you are saying, Buck, they don't grow cocaine. Cocaine is the drug. They grow the coca plant, which has been used in native ceremonies and medicine uh, stretching back for hundreds and hundreds of years. Anyway, uh, that's back to Honduras, where the uh, lost city of the monkey god, the title of the book, which is a very popular book now, it was okay. The, the most dangerous stuff that they faced, though, in their journey was the the day-to-day of being in a jungle, which is a reminder that the people that always think that, oh, if we're just in harmony with nature, like nature just wants to be our friend, just wants to like, take care of you and just... You know, they've watched Avatar one time too many. Uh, n- nature is very destructive. Uh, if you live in a lot of natural environments as a human being 
if you try to do it alone, your chances of survival are quite slim. And the jungle is one of the toughest places to hack out a living, uh, one of the harder environments in which to do that. I mean, the deep, dense jungle of Honduras. So they have to deal with a fair de lance snakes, which are a kind of pit viper that are very, very deadly. And they have a few examples of that in the book when they see them. And they're also aggressive. Some snakes, coral snakes, for example, are not particularly aggressive. You have to agitate them. Other snakes are kind of territorial and come at you like the fair de lance. And then there's this, the scariest thing, and this is what always bothers me about going to third world countries, is the uh, leishmaniasis which is a parasite that you get through the bite of an infected sand flea. And the sand flea puts this parasite in you. And leishmaniasis has a few different variants and can be incredibly debilitating. It can be deadly and it can be disfiguring too. There's a leishmaniasis strain that uh, some of the people on this expedition acquired, including the author, that was very, very hard to treat. You can't really eradicate it. You suppress the parasites. Uh, but if it were to overtake your immune system, because the immune system can hold the parasite in check somewhat, it eats away at your mucosal lining of your nose, your mouth, and essentially your face. And that's, they call it white leprosy. It's terrifying stuff. I'm trying to avoid, you know, I, I did that, that adventure travel stuff in my day. One day I'll tell you guys the Africa stories, but I don't know. I've, I've so far kept my Africa adventures to myself, at least I haven't made them very public. Uh, but the other places I've been, you know, some places in Iraq, some places in Afghanistan, you have to worry about malaria. Uh, but in, in any third world country, the thing that always kept me the most on edge is just the prospect of getting disease. And so I, I might be traveling to Asia next month. We're trying to get this all squared away right now. And I was thinking about doing some, after I go to, to China, I was going to say, maybe I'm going to go into Cambodia, and I want to go to Laos, and I want to do some... And then I was like, yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to go to, like, Hawaii instead. I don't know. I don't have the same... Maybe maybe I'm just sort of... I don't know what's happened. I just... I used to have this... this I was going to say the, the travel bug, but that's exactly what I don't want. I used to have this desire to go to really interesting, crazy places. Now I want to go to places where I can drink the water out of the tap, and the food is delicious, and everything is clean and safe. <laughs> I think I've gotten wimpier since I left the CIA, man. Uh, you know, I was down at the border. I was thinking, would I would I go and travel to Honduras to see what's going on with the migrant caravans? Would I do that? And I don't think I don't think these days I'm going to rush to do that anymore. So I'll stay on the U.S. side of the border for the most part. I'd cover the cartels as long as they were in cities and places where they actually have good tacos and margaritas. Uh, roll calls up next, team. We'll be right back. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time, everybody. You know what that means. It's time to get into the call of the roll. One of my very, very favoritest parts of the entire show. And I don't know why I feel the need to get into radio voice when you roll. Roll Call. Hey, oh, Roll Call, everybody. Come on down to Bob's Waterbed Super Emporium for your latest and best deals on waterbeds. You know, I've never been... On a waterbed, I can tell you. I do know that some leases for apartments in urban areas uh, explicitly deny your right to have a waterbed, which kind of makes me wish 
maybe I could try a waterbed at some point, but I, I don't think they'd be very comfortable. I just think it would be an interesting novelty of sorts, but it's all it's all fun and games. So you punch, punch a hole in your waterbed and it squirts that water all over the place. That's no good. Buck, get a grip. All right, Tommy is first up here. Douglas Murray, The Strange Death of Europe. Here's a YouTube clip very relevant to our border discussion. Well, Tommy, and by the way, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, facebook.com slash bucksexton. Just go to the message uh, icon, send me the message, and you can get on the show. And also, if you're listening to this and you do not already, please follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm on the gram, everybody. Instagram, bucksexton, the only one that I believe is on Instagram. There can be only one. There can be only one. It's more like that, actually. Highlander. Uh, Tommy. Yes, this is an interesting clip. I will take a look at it. I would say uh, that if you want a book on the subject, Bruce Bauer. I don't know if it's Bauer or Bauer. B-A-W-E-R. Wrote a book called While Europe Slept. He published it uh, quite a while ago. Maybe 15. Oh, no. 2006. Um, I would recommend it to you. It's about how radical Islam is destroying the West from within is the subtitle. And I think it is a book that you would uh, very much appreciate and enjoy. Um, let's see what we have here. Sheldon. Next up. Hey, Buck. Great show as always. Yes, Uncle Joe is a creepy old man. Not the biggest problem. Can you please give more details about Joe, his son and the Ukrainian natural gas company? Well, Sheldon. My colleague at The Hill, John Solomon, is the one who broke that story. And what I can tell you about the story is, uh, without pulling up the details in front of me right now, essentially Biden's son was on the board of a Ukrainian gas company. Biden's son and a company that, or in a, maybe a, a shell corporation or some kind of a partnership that he set up was getting really big payouts from this. And that's where the, the graft and the, the theft of, you know, public funds and all that in the former Soviet Union and Russia and the former Soviet states, it really occurs around the natural resource companies. A lot of these guys who are billionaires now who own sports teams in the U.S. and in, and in Europe, they made their initial money by the privatization of the state industries in the Soviet Union around things like you know natural gas, oil, you know, iron ore, you know, things like that, whatever the potassium, whatever the uh, important minerals are that they need in that country. I don't know if any, that was a very faint Borat reference that maybe one of you got, but it just sort of came out. So I figured, yes, we have the best potassium. Uh, yeah, no, Un Uncle Joe's creepy. It's not the end of the world. I'm not going to pretend like it's the end of the world. I just, I talk about it mostly because of the hypocrisy of the media and the fact that it's fun to point out that Biden likes to go... Your hair smells so fresh and so clean. It's so creepy, isn't it? It's so creepy when he does it like that. Biden, why are you being so creepy again? Tom, my main man, Shields Highbuck, love the show and have been a faithful listener since I found the show during the primaries. But the sudden flood of ads on the app are obnoxious. I'm sure it's out of your hands, but... The ads have jammed uh, in in the middle of a word sometimes. Anyway, still going to listen. Keep up the fight. Tom, your your voice has been heard on this one, my man. And the, the people that make those decisions listen to the show. And we'll make sure that we try to at least, I, I can't tell you that there'll be fewer ads on any specific platform, but at least they won't cut off 
the dulcet tones of Buck Sexton's voice. Hey, everybody. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Uh, Roger writes, final funeral oration for Pericles and monologue of Henry V, shot coffee out of my nose. Thank you, Roger. That's the point. I, I like to keep you all on your toes. You, know, you think, oh, I'm just listening to Buck. He's going to talk current events and politics and political philosophy. And then, whoa, he just got crazy. I just snorted some coffee out my nose. Got to keep you on your toes listening to this show. I can't just get all comfy like we're in some kind of a you know, 101 politics class. None of that stuff. Keith, next up in the mix here. You're absolutely right. Springsteen sucks. Keith, you know, you and I, my friend, are among the enlightened on this. There are so very many other people, and they are entitled to their wrong opinion, who love the boss, you know? They think, born in the USA, I was... But they think that that's like a great song, timeless and really pro-American. If you listen to the words, though, uh, it is not, in fact, really a, a pro-American song. And Springsteen has the politics of Alyssa Milano and the the common touch, I think, is a little overrated with Springsteen, too. And the guys, uh, he's not my thing. He's not my thing. I just I know some of you like him. I'm sorry. I know I'm trolling you a little bit with this, but. You know, then again, if you knew all the different music acts that I listen to, you'd make fun of you'd make fun of them a lot. So, I mean, is there some T-Swift on my playlist for working out? I don't know. Can neither confirm nor deny that information is classified and you're not read in to the T-Swift program. What's up? Uh, Jared. Um, Jared writes. Oh, wait, sorry, Jared. That one got cut off a little bit. Isn't the Zucker style in style? I would say to you, my friend, the Zucker style is never in style because Zucker hates America and freedom, and he likes to unbutton his shirt down to his navel to give us a nice open view of that stuff that's going on there. Okay, next up here in the in the uh, roll call. Remember, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Michael, Buck, I'm afraid of the economic strain that closing the border will create and that it won't actually stop the asylum seekers from getting in. Is it possible Trump is threatening to close the border to get the media to report on the crisis? Not saying he won't do it and that he's not justified to do it. I want Congress to act, but history and my cynical side doesn't think they will. I give Trump credit for trying to get Congress to act. We need to point out that it is really Congress's responsibility and the Republicans need to step the hell up and back Trump's play. Shields high. Michael, it is Congress's responsibility, but we know they're not going to do anything about it and they won't be held accountable. And one of the problems of Congress is that their collective responsibility and they like it that way. That's why they don't like to take tough votes. Their collective responsibility is essentially a shield against meaningful criticism. So that's something that we have to deal with as, as a society and look at more thoroughly in our political system. Elise. Hey, Buck, I was just listening to you live from El Paso. I really hope you'll post some of your findings. People need to know what is really going on at the border. Well, Elise, I wrote at thehill.com last week, if you type in Buck Sexton and TheHill.com. I wrote last week on the border what I saw down there. 
As of now, I should be joining Tucker Carlson tomorrow night during the 8 p.m. Eastern hour on Fox News to talk about what I saw at the border, which I think will be a very interesting discussion. Now, that might change based on the news, so I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow if that gets canceled. That often happens in the news cycle. And I think I may be doing Fox and Friends this weekend as well, also on the border. So there'll be some opportunities for me to get the word out even beyond the hill and, and on this show which I appreciate. But the the long and the short of it is the border is worse right now than it has been probably ever. The border is the worst right now it's ever been. If, if you are somebody who does not want illegal entry to happen in the United States, if you do not believe that people should be able to game the system and stay in the U.S. indefinitely, most likely forever, the border is worse than it has ever been. And this is happening under a president who ran on completely changing the game and finally doing something about the border. So I would be lying to you if I didn't say this is disheartening. It is disheartening. And I, I know that President Trump is very focused in on this. I, I know that he is trying to find some way to take action, but it may be beyond his control right now. And, and if it falls into Congress's lap, we know the Democrats are simply not going to be helpful on this. They just have no interest in stopping the flow of illegal migrants into the country. This has become a central political platform for the Democrats. I mean, this is something that really, really matters to them, that they view that they view their party as the champions of immigration and immigration in particular from what are predominantly non-white countries because they believe that the uh, American people owe the developing world, which is generally speaking, the developing world is non-white majority countries. Uh, we owe them and therefore this is payback. This is kind of like a global version of reparations. You know, the whole world should be able to come into America because of the rapaciousness of American capitalism and imperialism. It's a crazy ideology they've got, at least, but unfortunately, it's the one they've got. Tomorrow, we're going to have a Freestyle Friday. Might have some friends join in on the show just to mix it up. So we'll see how that goes. But you know the show is going to be awesome. Please do share it with a friend this weekend. How about an early Christmas present for Mr. Buck Sexton? Get one friend of yours to download the show. That is my my biggest favor I can ask of you. Get one person to download this radio show. And then afterwards, be like, is this not the smartest, most well-informed radio show or podcast you have heard? And... If they say yes, then I want to hear about it. If they say no, well, then let's pretend that it didn't happen. But at least get them to listen to it one time. That's going to be it for today's show, team. Excited to talk to you tomorrow. Same time, same place. Shield time.